All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Larry and Sergey, Jobs and Wozniak. Mark Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, I know that's technically three. I can't actually think of any comparable female duos but anyway, in our scenario, it's Rachel and Leslie. My name is Leslie Walker, and um, what do you mean by describe myself? What do you do for a living? Um, I'm a startup entrepreneur who uh, has recently gotten into this racket. So my name is Rachel Allison. It's an easy question. Rachel Allison. <laughs> and I am a work-life advocate, a consultant, and a coach, and the co-founder of Need Done. Two moms in Brooklyn, co-founding a company to help other moms. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is the last chapter in our four-part series called Taking the Lead. Our final episode is called The Partnership, and we meet it on multiple levels. Co-founders, employees and bosses, parents, and heck partnership you need to strike between you and your various identities as a spouse, a worker, a parent. We've been chronicling Raquel and Leslie and their big idea all month. They call it Need Done. The service doesn't actually exist yet, but the concept is like a social network of vetted babysitters and other kinds of help for moms. Yes, the short form of it is it's a task rabbit that you can trust because everybody in the network is used by your friends. If you want to know why we're focusing mostly on moms, go back and listen to the first couple of episodes. There are some crazy stats in there about why women still end up doing more of the domestic work and managing of the household, even in two-income families. We're all looking for answers to how to make this all work. Here's what some of you told us you've learned and tried and come to terms with while attempting to combine a career and parenting. Hi, Note to Self. I'm in Alabama. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom until my kids were about two and three, and then I went to work full-time. This is not my time for my kids, and there'll be a time for me later. I don't know when you have a demanding job how you can really be both the mom you want to be and have the career that you want to have. I really screwed up the work-life balance thing about two months ago. Um, in fact, my balance was so out of whack that it blew up in my face and my boss and my colleagues asked for me to take time off of work and reestablish and regroup. It was kind of a blessing in disguise. It's kind of hard to come home and have my son prefer to go see my husband. Even though I am very progressive, you know, a millennial mom, it's hard. I think there's 
traditional roles, as much as I don't want to believe in them, are deeply rooted. And, you know, that's my struggle. I am a new mom of a six-week-old baby. The biggest issue kind of seems to be that men or our husbands or our male partners are both not expected or asked to make the same kinds of sacrifices in work or take the same amount of responsibility at home. I think it's so important to talk to men about this too and ask them the same question. I figured out with my partner, who's my husband, ways that we can have our family and both of us have careers. And one way is that we sort of take turns. Yes, the male perspective. The man, dad thing. We're going to really get into that actually in this episode. By the way, those were listeners Michelle, Mandy, Nicole, Danny, Thea, and Annie. And on previous episodes in this series, we heard from Serena, Kristen, Amy, Julia, Maureen, Kat, Dana, Bliss, Maria, and Heather. Listeners from all over the country, from Australia, the UK too. Thank you all so much for your voice memos, your emails, your posts. We read them all. And please don't stop because I am dying to hear your reaction to this final episode. When we left our moms turned entrepreneurs, Raquel and Leslie, they had just come in ninth out of 12 at a startup competition. And they were not pleased. There's room for three more zeros on that. (laughs) They had decided to wow the judges with a pitch that put valuations of their company front and center, rather than the social mission behind the idea. We will break even at 7,855 users, which will yield $1.2 million. And I had pulled the judges aside to kind of re-pitch their idea for them. You access the network. Someone else steps in. You don't have to drop the ball with an important client, and you don't get penalized for being a woman with kids and a husband who also works. And a society that says, well, of course the woman will be the one that has to answer the call first. Right. And that's a good point. I think that the points that you're making are ones that did not really get presented. And I think that that was- Before we get to how Rachel and Leslie reacted when I played them that tape of me talking to the judges and how Rachel has decided to deal with the deep ambivalence she has over startup life, let's look at the bigger picture here. It is outrageous that America is the only country in the developed world that doesn't guarantee paid leave. Hillary Clinton, the first woman, the first mother to be a candidate for the president of the United States. That is worth taking a moment to acknowledge whatever your politics are. Expanding family-friendly policies like paid leave would be a big win for all of us, but maybe especially for this woman. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, and my book is Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work, Family. Now Anne-Marie is CEO of the nonprofit The New America Foundation. But in 2012, she was Hillary Clinton's advisor at the State Department. And then she wrote this piece in The Atlantic called Why Women Still Can't Have It All, about why she was giving up her dream job to go home to New Jersey to help her husband, Andy, who was acting as the primary caregiver to their two sons. 
We started out like most couples start out, I think a little bit naive. We thought we're a two career couple and we'll also split the parenting 50 50. Yeah, the 50 50 thing didn't quite work out. You're going to hear Andy's side of the story later in the show, too. But first, I really wanted Anne Marie's take on whether something like Need Done, a service for busy moms, could work, and whether our culture around care has changed since she wrote that article and left the State Department. I have seen change in a number of ways. One is just the attention that people are paying to the future of work more generally. I find that people are much more receptive to the idea that workplaces really do have to change. And I also find that more men are asking these questions as well as women. And in terms of this idea of more acceptance of the caretaking roles that people play at home, I mean, I'm starting to hear people use that term caretaking more often. That makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm also seeing that that people are still expected to be available at all times. Yes, there is a recognition that if you need to be at home or you need to take your child to the doctor or be at a school event or take an older relative somewhere that he or she needs to go, that a good workplace makes room for that. But you're right, at the same time, the idea is, well, you can do that because you are still available. So what is now happening is the growth of workplace norms around what is reasonable to expect. So I hear people in my audiences saying now, in my company, we don't email on weekends. Mm -hmm. Or in my company, if the boss really needs to get me, she'll text me. But email, I can answer on my time rather than my coworker's time or my boss's time. But I guess I wonder, like, do you see that happening at the very, very tip top, at the high executive level, the CEOs? Is there a sense that, you know, CEOs are okay with showing that they are caretakers as well? That's a complicated question. I mean, what you see in Silicon Valley is Mark Zuckerberg taking paternity leave, and he's not the only one. There are a growing number of men in technology companies who actually think it's a sign of being ahead of the curve that they are taking time for caregiving. But that's a very small number of companies. So it's interesting. Here's where I filled in Anne-Marie on Need Done, Rachel and Leslie's idea for a support network for parents. I think that makes a great deal of sense. I've been wondering why, if we have neighborhood apps that let you borrow a snowblower or lend out other things, there's a growing number of these apps. Why can't you find neighbors whom you trust who, if you're late uh, and your child is walking home from school, somebody else is there? It does seem to me that we have not really even explored all the different ways in which technology, as you said, can activate a trusted network. I mean, I have to say the other thing, though, that made me sad about this, you know, as a middle-aged woman with children, like listening to them, where they seemed to fall short was also, frankly, how familiar they were with what is even possible technically. Yeah. Um, and that, <laughs> you know, no wonder Silicon Valley is making things for people that look like them because those of us who maybe are a little older or have been wrapped up in caretaking things simply don't necessarily know what the tools can do. Yes. 
I, I completely agree with this. If you are spending time investing in a child, caring for a parent, supporting your own spouse, you are not going to have a whole lot of time to explore the latest app. <laughs> I often think it's like a fraternity trying to design products for a world they barely see. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, what does the 21st century workplace ideally look like? And could it truly be fully accepting and reflect all the different roles that we play in our lives? I mean, could companies even survive if it did look like that? I think so. Now, I'm very optimistic. And I always say I'm optimistic because when I was 10 years old as a girl in Virginia, I didn't know a single woman doctor, politician, judge. I knew one woman lawyer. We've just scratched the surface. We're telecommuting. We are increasingly going to be able to make things in places much closer to where we live with 3D printing, with new digital manufacturing, and their digilabs and maker spaces. And it's for reasons of cheaper real estate, better lifestyle, better environment, better place to raise your kids. I think you're going to see a lot of the most desirable employees wanting a different balance. We should expect all managers to have extended coverage plans. And that means to look at a person's team and to assume every person on that team, man or woman, young or old, could need to be out again for six weeks, three months, even longer. And the question then is, what are you going to do when that happens? And if you're not thinking about that, you're not taking account of reality. In the short term, though, do you think if we can, you know, in the next five, ten years, make it easier for women to also be caregivers as well as high-level executives, do you think that having them at the top could make the situation better for all women? I think the deeper issue is embedded in the way you ask the question, which is as long as we think about this as making it better for women to be able to fit their care responsibilities together with their work, we're not going to get there. We'll get there when we look at every single young man and say to him, have you thought about how you're going to fit your work and your career together? Better yet, let's not restrict it to parents. Let's assume that it's also people who will care for spouses, disabled family members, sick family members, and their own parents. It's when we internalize the idea that care is not a woman's job that we'll get there. When we come back, a father's point of view. Anne-Marie Slaughter's husband, Professor Andrew Moravchik, on what being the lead parent can mean for men, professionally and personally, including some of his most difficult moments. I feel a bit guilty about this to this day, to tell you the truth. Also, the end of our story about Raquel and Leslie. We'll be right back. It's Note to Self. I'm Anoush. We're back with our final episode of our four-part series, Taking the Lead. My name is Andy Morovchek. I'm a professor of political science at Princeton University, and I'm a lead dad here at home. Andy is married to Anne-Marie Slaughter. He's the man behind the woman, the one keeping their personal life running. But they didn't plan it that way. We started out like most couples start out, I think, a little bit naive. We thought... 
we're a two-career couple, and we'll also split the parenting 50-50. And it turned out that my wife took a succession of jobs that required that she be outside of the home for long periods of time and that constrained her schedule much more than mine was constrained. And more and more, the only way for us to manage a two-career marriage with kids was for me to become the lead dad. Did you guys sit down and use that word, lead parent? Because I feel like I don't think I was even saying that as recently as two or three years ago. No. One of the things we've learned is that you need to start making up some new language to understand the position we're in and also to legitimate the roles that people are taking. You know, people use words like stay-at-home dad or full-time dad or um, Mr. Mom. And we don't think those words are either – they don't make people feel good about themselves – Uh, and they aren't legitimating. And something like lead dad is a much better word and also, I think, a much better description of what lead dads do day to day. What we found, interestingly, at least in our case, was it was even more difficult when our kids became teenagers because we had at least one problematic teenager, very problematic teenager, which Anne-Marie wrote about in her article. It was I I feel a bit guilty about this to this day, to tell you the truth. I simply couldn't handle it. My hat is off to single parents because single parents don't have somebody else to go to. But people who are in, you know, two-parent families, you know, you often tag team. And when things really get bad, sometimes you hand off to somebody else. And it got to the point with our older son, uh, you know, he was starting to run away. He was having trouble with the police, et cetera, et cetera. And I just couldn't handle it by myself. And that situation is what led her to leave Washington and leave her dream job and come back. And I really wish I could have been able to handle that, but this was just one of those situations where I couldn't. I'm wondering, is that emasculating to be able to say, I can't do this? Has the role of fathering or being a dad changed, do you think, in this generation? I think it has. I mean, you ask, is it emasculating? I think it's really more interesting than that. For me, I, from the start, thought I wanted to be different than my dad in some ways because he was very much that do-what-I-say kind of dad. And I found out that just didn't work. And I still have some tendencies like that, and I fight against (laughs) them. Um, And so does my wife, to tell you the truth. We both do. So I don't think it's necessarily a gender thing, but I do think this, which is that It is both empowering in the end and fulfilling as a human being to be able to experience in a deep way both what a career has to teach you and what parenting has to teach you, right? It makes you fuller as a human being. And I I think my father missed out on something by not fully experiencing what it meant to be a parent. This is kind of personal, but I find that, and I wonder if this is something that you and Anne-Marie experienced, you know, you put two ambitious people who obviously came together because they loved to talk about ideas and maybe travel the world and had all these great dreams that the other was supporting. And then you bring kids into the picture and um, there's a weird jockeying that starts to happen between spouses, I think, often. It certainly does with 
I feel like my husband and I, like, we're competitive people. And then I see us actually doing that sometimes with our kids as well. Like, well, I woke up earlier and I got the lunches ready. And you went to the gym, didn't you? Yeah, no, that's okay. I got it. It's fine. This weird constant tension that goes on and scorekeeping. Did you guys ever have that? Or was it like you guys decided, nope, Andrew's the one in charge, so no guilt trips here? We had periods of time when we kept score on pieces of paper of how much (laughs) each person was doing because we were having too many fights about who was doing more. That was more in the period when we really thought we were going to split it Mm 50-50. As it became less 50-50-ish, it changed somewhat. But it's still true that... You know, you can't quite resist the psychological temptation when Anne-Marie doesn't know, you know, that there's a piano recital coming up or something like that to say, how can you not know there's a piano recital coming up? Here, Okay, here's what I want to know. This is a very weird question, but I'm wondering, do you think that fathers standards might be different? Is there kind of a gender difference in terms of expectations? I just want to use a weird like this example that happened to me last week, which was. I asked my husband to buy sliced bread so I could make lunches that week. He didn't bring home the sliced bread. And he's like, what's the big deal? Pack them some yogurts. Totally no about a gender difference. There is not a gender difference. Really? I think this is an extremely dangerous thing to think. We think as a society, many women think that men are somehow genetically not quite capable of getting it together to organize in the house. So you have to kind of write out the instructions of what they need to do when they go to the supermarket or go to the swimming pool or go to the doctor's office because they're just not quite with it. Okay, I think this is because in all but 4% of American households, women are doing most of the child care and housework. Therefore, they are more experienced. In the households where men have it together, they are perfectly capable of doing this, and the situation is reversed. Now, imagine the following. Suppose in a workplace, I said to a woman, you know, you're kind of good at this, but, you know, genetically not quite as good as a guy, so I'm (laughs) going to write it out for you because, you know, it's okay, you can do the job, but you just need a little help. You know, you go, that's an incredibly sexist remark. Well, it's exactly like that in the home. I think we're at an epical moment for social conversation here. We have a generation of people, young people, who really want to have equal partnerships with their spouse. Those can be gay people, straight people, all kinds of different people. And they aren't sure how to achieve it. And they are not achieving it by just going forward and blundering through it. And as we share all this information with each other and think about how to change, I think we're going to actually alter the way everybody thinks about this, just as we have in many other issues in society, race, gender roles, and so on. It's possible. This was just absolutely wonderful, Andrew. You really have closed the circle beautifully for us. Great. maybe not quite close the circle. It's time to wrap up Rachel and Leslie's story. 
So we'd originally made a plan for all three of us to get together here in the WNYC studio so that I could tell them about my experience with the judges, uh, how I kind of talked to the judges and repitched their idea for them. But then Raquel and Leslie canceled, and they could only reschedule separately. Busy people, right? So Raquel came in first. Hello! Hello! Oh my God, it's happening. And I got straight to the point. I told her that I thought the reason they had won so little prize money during the Accelerator competition, that one you heard in episode three, was because they had left out the social mission in their pitch. All they did was focus on the financial stuff. And so at the cocktail party that we went to, you were like, go and talk to the judges. So I went specifically to speak to one woman, um, Sandra Stone. Mm -hmm. She is an angel investor in Maine, I believe. And um, I kind of repitched you guys to her. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Let's listen. Should I give them advice? Should I tell them to go back to the story? I mean, I'm inserting myself into the story right now. I almost want to replay what you've had. They should listen to this. (laughs) So I'm taking Judge Sandra Stone's advice. I'm Mm -hmm. replaying it for you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I appreciate that. Look, I mean... I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. You're not. No. We've been pitching this for two years in some capacity, right? You know, I I definitely speak to the social cause. It's just what I'm about, I guess. So let's talk about what your role will be then with the company. We heard throughout the last two years the real stretch and strain that was put on your family life by being part of a startup. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the irony of all ironies that you're trying to create a startup that helps working moms while you as a working mom were struggling more than ever. Mm-hmm. And the last conversation we really heard between the two of you was Leslie saying to you, I think you need to make a choice. Mm. My role in the company is I'm moving out of the day-to-day operations of the company. It's going to be less operational and as an advisor. Is there any part of you that's like, Damn, I you know, we made it really far here and I want to keep going. And I am. I mean, I am, you know, I am still going to be advising and I'm still going to be part of the strategic direction. And right, so, but that's different than what I heard you say. Like in the tape, we hear you over and over again feeling so conflicted about wanting to be 110% there with this startup and then also having, you know, an image of yourself as a certain kind of mother. And as much as like I don't want to project all women onto you, I really <laughs> Thank you for it that. really resonated with me. Yeah. Like I saw a colleague of mine in the hallway. We had this big work thing last night and I was like, I'll see you later at the work thing. And she, you know, joking said to me, no, you won't because I've made different choices than you. (laughs) And I was like, oh, it's a Leslie Rachel moment. Do you know what I mean? I get that idea that like we could be seen as archetypes. But, you know, the truth is nothing's black and white and we have made different decisions and we can still work together and we can still respect each other and like we can understand where the other one comes from. And I'm not saying – I think the mommy wars are largely over, right, the stay-at-home versus yeah. working mom wars. But there's still a lot of gray area, especially in the workplace. Like you're staying – like your colleague's not going to the work. But like what does that say about her? You know, is she still as committed to work as sure. you are? Yeah. You know, and are you judging – like well, I, I was judging myself. To... I was like, oh, right. maybe I've made the wrong choices. Right, exactly. So let's stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I think – People struggle with that in different ways at different times in their children's lives. And I happen to have a three and a half and six and a half year old. 
working parenthood, parenthood, you're just constantly managing change. And so, you know, it's not going to feel exactly the same. I don't want to be the same mom today that I want to be, you know, but I, but it, it's about my values and what I focus on. And I, there is a sort of threshold that I feel like I, I need to meet in order to be, be, you know, in order to enjoy the experience, frankly. A day later, Leslie came in. I played her some tape of the judges, too. It was great to hear. It was really good to hear just because we haven't been getting that kind of reception from the female investors. So it's amazing to basically know that that can be a motivating factor. And we heard from these judges basically saying that, like, actually, investors are getting tired of seeing app after app after app, and they are looking for something different. And actually, this could have been a way to set yourselves apart. Do you... I don't know if I necessarily agree that it would set us apart in necessarily the right way. Mm. One of the things that you do have to be wary of with certain group of investors is you present yourself as a woman with a cause and all of a sudden that doesn't become a pro either. So you just have to be careful. What do you mean? Well, you've got to prove yourself twice as hard sometimes because you don't have the social – what's the word? You don't have – the beers after work. You don't have the games of squash. You don't have the weekends away. There's a lot of like social stuff that you can't really participate in if you have a child or if you have a family. You've got to prove that you know your stuff almost first. At least that's what I've learned. I've had most success once people don't see my gender when they see my talent. So I've got two masters to play to. I've got to be able to speak to my personal story. But equally, we have to be able to prove that we know exactly how to make this a 10x company. It's just money still drives all the investment that happens in a space where it's becoming harder and harder to raise money. If you do have a 10x exit, what happens? I saw that I got an email from you. Your sign-off is now CEO of Need Done. Raquel says she's stepping back, taking more of a consultant role. I think right now... It's right for her. She was definitely always, always my partner, and she continues to be my partner. But to be honest, like for us to actually make this happen, if we don't make hard decisions like this, it's not going to. We can't do everything. Like you can't share in every decision in order to work efficiently. In a world where people are part of this network, they're using this texting service to fill in their gaps in their lives, to get stuff off their to-do list. What does that change culturally? We started off, the dream for this was basically getting parents to learn to ask for help and actually like not be so afraid to do it in public, in a more public way, as opposed to just keeping it as part of their private sphere, them dealing with it on their own. It, It what we kept hearing was that it's just a lonely experience to have to struggle with all this stuff on your own. And you don't realize that everybody else is struggling. So why not create a community so that people can tap into shared resources? Is this a happy ending? Rachel and Leslie didn't get a big check. They haven't solved the parent work problem. And their partnership certainly changed under various pressures. And they haven't got more women into those jobs at the very top. Not yet, anyway. But whether or not Need Done ever does get a 10x return, I think Rachel and Leslie have succeeded in at least one very small way. By letting me tag along for two years and create this series, 
You and I have indeed begun talking about our struggles. A lot of you told me that you don't hear about this stuff much, and you certainly don't get to talk about it much. Many thanks to Rachel and Leslie for opening up this conversation, and to you for listening and sharing your stories in public. Um, little epilogue, by the way, from Rachel. I just got an email update from her. She wants to let you know that in addition to advising Need Done, she is now senior partner at a place called the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. She'll be working as a consultant there and continuing her private coaching practice as well. And she is working full time. By the way, if you loved Andy Moravchuk as much as I did, we didn't get to put nearly enough of the great stuff that he and I talked about. So there is a bonus little something down your podcast feed this week that you can listen to. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast to tell someone about our Taking the Lead series so that we can continue to have this conversation. And if you can spare two seconds, rate us, uh, leave a comment on iTunes, it triggers this algorithmic thing that then gets us in front of more people. I mean, I know it's kind of silly, but it does make a difference. So if you can do it, please do. And as always, if you want to tell us something, anything, record a voicemail or email us at note to self at WNYC.org. Reach out on Facebook or Twitter. You can also find out more of what's going on in our minds and see behind the scenes here at Note to Self by signing up for our newsletter. It's weekly, but never spammy, I promise you. Find it at notetoselfradio.org as well. This series was produced by me and Jen Point. This episode was mixed and made beautiful by Joe Plort, Hannes Brown, and Matt Fiddler. Many thanks to Jenna Cagle, Seth Kelly, and Megan Kunane for their production support this week. Note to Self comes from WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. So my work-life balance story actually started very stressful, but ended very well. I had my daughter at the time. She was about a year old. I was working at a job that really stressed me out, and I had an incredibly stressful day picking her up from daycare. And I put her to bed that night. I closed the door, and I sat outside of her room and basically just bawled. I mean, I cried, and I thought, I don't know if I can do this working parent thing anymore. And the next day, somebody from my old firm that I worked for called me up and said, listen, we have this really great position for you. Are you interested? And it was a lot more responsibility, definitely a great career move. But I was like, listen, like, I don't know if I can do this five days a week commute into New York City anymore, which for me was about an hour and a half each way. And because of the really difficult day I had had the day before, it really made me dig in my heels and push myself to have this conversation and insist that I be given an arrangement that worked for me. So as a result of that conversation, I got a work schedule where I go into the office three days a week. I work one day a week at home and I'm off one day a week. I really feel like I was able to lean in and lean out at the same time. And that, to me, has made all the difference. No more. Messages 